Amen. Thank you, gentlemen. I love the Christmas season. I, I can say I love that so many people leave and they're, they're gone from Abu Dhabi, but I'm thankful for them that they get to go be with friends and family. This last week, and if, if you don't have small children, you might not know this, but we had 21 of our faith family kids that sang in the Yaz Island Rotana for their Christmas tree lighting ceremony. And so we, we had a couple hundred people that heard our children sing about Jesus. And so it was really a blessing to be hosted by the Yaz Rotana for their, their event for Christmas and have our kids go sing and praise our Lord. And so that was a really great time of fellowship with the other parents that were there. And we'll have another opportunity to fellowship together here Christmas season on Christmas Eve. You heard Gilbert mention that. I would encourage you to take these, these little invite cards, these flyers that are in your bulletin, and that you would not use this for yourself, but that you would use this to invite someone else, that you would be intentional and think, well, who in my life could I invite that would come on Christmas Eve and hear the gospel and experience Jesus with us? So use that. Give this away. We'll have more next week and invite people. Um, it really is that time of year again, isn't it, where there's a lot of business, a lot of activity, and people are preparing their homes for guests that will come in to visit. Like, for example, in my family, Bonnie's parents are going to be coming in on Sunday. And so, of course, we're busy with their first time to be in the Middle East, and so we're excited about that. Many of you are going to have family in town. Many of our church is gone, but that's the way it is, that this busyness, what, what can happen for us is as we're buying presents, as we're decorating, as we're having all these festivities, we can get so busy with the activity that we can actually forget the true reason for this season. And so to keep our minds and our hearts focused on what it is that Christmas is about, for the month of December, we're going through Luke 1 and 2. And so this is going to be our teaching series. We began it last week. It'll go through the end of the month. And it's called Change That Christmas. So we're talking about experiencing change at Christmas. And it's about encountering the Savior changes everything. And so I am not talking about making changes as though you want to somehow improve yourself. Like some of us may say, man, you know what? I really would like to be a more patient person or I want to be a more forgiving person, or I want to be less angry, or I want to be more generous, or I want to be kinder. These are good things, but if you try to make these kinds of changes on your own, according to your own willpower, you won't succeed. You, you won't be able to change yourself. So if you want to experience true change, even here at this Christmas season, there has to be something much deeper for these changes to take root. Now, why is that? Why is it that we can't change ourselves? It's not that complicated. Just look at a tree. If you look at an apple tree, it's going to produce apples. If you, if you look at an orange tree, it's going to produce oranges. Human beings are no different. You're going to produce, you're going to bear fruit based upon your nature. So God has given this to us in the created order where we can see that everything produces according to its kind, according to its nature. And so we as human beings have a sinful, corrupted human nature, and so we produce sin. That's natural to us. That's easy for us. 
And so in order for us to be truly changed, we have to have our nature changed. We have to have a new nature. We have to have the Holy Spirit of God come into us and completely change us and give us a new heart. And so your nature, deep inside of you, your heart, will impact how you think. So the thoughts that come into your mind, what you think about, and what you say, and so your thoughts will be verbalized into words, and then that will become what you do. And so the thoughts that you, you think about, what you ponder on, what you enjoy, what you delight in, what you desire most, your thoughts and your words and your actions will all flow from your nature, from your heart. And so to be changed at Christmas in this season, but even beyond that, just as a whole in life, it must be that God changes our hearts. And encountering Jesus, the risen Messiah, our God, he alone can change our hearts. Nothing else will do. Encountering him indeed does change everything. So as we're continuing and studying Luke 1 and 2, we began last week. Let's continue today in Luke chapter 1. We're reading out of verses 39 through 56. Luke 1, 39 through 56. It's on the screens as well. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring, forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. The primary theme that we see here in this text in Luke 1 is humility. That is the overriding theme that we're seeing here in these verses. I'm talking about incredible, awe-inspiring, supernatural, not normal to humans type humility. So the main idea, if you're taking notes, so the main idea for this text that governs our thoughts this morning is that rejoicing in God will lead to a humble heart. And so truly rejoicing in God is what will lead us to having a truly humble heart. This is a very important text in the story of how God gave us Jesus and leading up to his birth. This is connected to the passage that we looked at last week in Luke 1. 
And so it's important to remember what happened, that the angel Gabriel had visited Mary and made her some promises. The, the messenger from God, Gabriel, said that she would give birth to the very Son of God. This is what he said in verse 36. We read this last week. Just review briefly. 136. The angel said, And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, that this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. And so her relative, it doesn't say what relative, aunt, cousin, don't know, but they're related, and we know that Elizabeth was older and she was barren. She, she was infertile, could not have children. And so if you had read earlier in chapter 1, verses 5 through 24, it reveals more about Elizabeth. Here's what we know from Luke 1, that she was married to a man named Zechariah, who was a priest. These were godly people. They loved and served God faithfully. Elizabeth, again, could not have children. She was older, which means that she probably went through two decades of pain and of yearning and of hoping and of fasting and of asking God and begging God, please give me children. Please remove this shame from me. And God's saying no to Elizabeth and not getting pregnant and not having children and being shamed in the eyes in her cultural context. But those days were gone. The hope of having children was history. She's older now. And she's accepted the reality that God had for her. And she's still faithful and still loves God despite not having had children. And then an angel appears to her husband, priest Zechariah, and says that she, in her old age, would have a child supernaturally. Granted, it would happen through Zechariah, so it wasn't a virgin thing like with Jesus. But she was well past bearing years, and she was infertile. And yet, God would do a miracle and allow Elizabeth to be pregnant. And then she was told through the angel that the child would be called John and that he would prepare the way for the Messiah, that her son John, known as John the Baptist later, that John would be the one in the spirit of Elijah to fulfill prophecy and that he would point to, that he would announce and point to Jesus, a prophet of old now in the first century to announce Jesus. Huge blessing, remarkable blessings poured upon Elizabeth and Zechariah as she was six months pregnant. And then her young relative, Mary, comes and greets her. And so this story of these two ladies with Mary and Elizabeth showed that both of them are remarkably humble, that God has worked in their hearts and they're so captivated by the beauty and glory of God that the normal overflow for these two ladies is just humility that then leads to praise. They're just praising God. So you have Elizabeth singing a hymn, praising God on behalf of Mary, and then Mary singing a hymn, a poetry, beautiful, both inspired by the Holy Spirit, able to just praise God with just remarkably humble hearts. And so how can we do that? How can we have the kind of hearts that we see here with these two ladies. I'm talking about just shocking humility in the face of even frustration or disappointment. It's what's thrilling your heart. 
So what, what thrills our hearts? It must be Jesus. We must be overwhelmed by him and so gripped by him that praise just pours out of us. And so this text here, as we understand the main idea, is that rejoicing in God, we see that Mary said that she's rejoicing in verse 47. So this rejoicing in God is what will lead us to having humble hearts. And this reveals exactly in this text what to rejoice in about God. So there's three specific characteristics. So there's three character traits in this text that reveal who God is. And we must rejoice in God. And he reveals to us exactly how. What about him should we rejoice in? Not just generically, but specifically. Like, guys, if you say you like your wife or you look nice, by the way, I wouldn't use that word nice. It's not very helpful. Oh, you look nice. No, be specific. Tell her what it is about her that you like or love or cherish about her. And with God, it's the same thing. He doesn't want to say, oh, God is nice. No, specifically, what is it about God's incredible character that grips our hearts and this text reveals it and there's three character traits that we must rejoice in God number one is we must rejoice in God's power rejoice in it celebrate it enjoy it delight in exult in it so all these words referring to what we see here that Mary is rejoicing in God's power that's the first character trait and so God is all-powerful He is sovereign. He is the king. He delights in what he does. He does what he delights in. He is in control of our lives. He is in control of our our church and what happens with us. He is sovereign. He has sovereign, ultimate, infinite power. And when we are confronted with God's awesome, glorious power, we are humbled. We are brought to our knees. When we don't recognize God's power, then we stand up straight in the face of God and we don't bow down and we're not humbled. We see in this text very clearly that God is sovereignly, powerfully at work putting all the pieces together. This pregnant lady, Elizabeth, can't have kids, supernaturally pregnant now. Mary never has been with a man, supernaturally pregnant now. God is orchestrating everything supernaturally, sovereignly, powerfully in order to accomplish his purposes. But let's read the words of Elizabeth again so that we can read just those few words in Luke 1, verses 41 and 43. Here's what she says again. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. She exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit in your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? This is incredible. You have these two pregnant ladies, okay? Now, Mary was more recently pregnant, but you have Elizabeth, now six months pregnant, and and they're greeting each other. But something more important than that is happening here. This is not so much about the two women greeting each other. This is about two babies greeting each other. This is about prenatal, 
in the womb, Jesus, and prenatal in the womb, John, the prophet, greeting each other. John hasn't even been born yet. He's, he's still in the womb. And he is already pre-born, already accomplishing the purpose that God has for his life. He is announcing the coming of the Messiah. He is leaping for joy. He is the prophet who is pointing, this is Jesus, and he brings joy. And he isn't even born yet. This shows God's sovereignty. This shows that he has called John for a purpose, and he is recognizing King Jesus by simply hearing Mary's greeting because he is called apart, filled with the Holy Spirit. What you have here with Elizabeth is no one told her that this was Jesus. No one told Elizabeth. It's not like Mary went on Skype and said, Hey, Elizabeth, I'm praying with the Messiah. It's not like she posted it on Facebook and updated her status and got a lot of likes. She, she didn't tweet it. She left. She left her house and went to Elizabeth to tell her. But even before Mary gets a word out, Elizabeth already knows. How does Elizabeth even know? It says that the baby, John, leaped for joy. Well, how did Elizabeth know that the baby's leaping for joy in her uterus was an announcement of King Jesus? So she was filled by the Holy Spirit. The only way that anyone recognizes King Jesus is the Holy Spirit. The only way anyone is able to recognize the beauty and glory and sovereignty of Jesus is that the Holy Spirit must fill them and must open their eyes and allow them to see the truth of the gospel. And so you read in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3, Apostle Paul, Spirit inspires him. He says, no one says Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. No one. No one will say Jesus is Lord unless the Holy Spirit empowers them, enables them, regenerates them, fills them, opens their eyes. They see their sin. They see the beauty of Jesus. And then they're able to confess Jesus is Lord. And you see here Elizabeth is confessing that Jesus is her Lord, that Mary's mother of her Lord, she says, incredible humility powered by the Holy Spirit. This is the power of God. And what you see then is Mary inspired by the same Holy Spirit to write Scripture, to really sing Scripture. Now, if you've heard of Hannah in the Old Testament and 1 Samuel, you'll know that she could not have children, and God gave her a little boy named Samuel. And I'm convinced that on, on the 70-kilometer journey where Mary was going to go see her, her relative Elizabeth, you can tell that Mary had been reading First Samuel. You can tell that she was just gripped by Hannah because of how much it parallels the song that Hannah sung. She was in the Word. You can clearly tell that she was walking closely to God, immersed in God's Word. And then what pours out is, is just praise for God, inspired by the Spirit. And she sings verses 46 through 
55, remarkable song of praise. Verse 46, Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in my God, my Savior. And so her soul is magnifying the Lord, and her spirit rejoices. She's rejoicing in God, and that is giving her this remarkable, humble heart. To magnify means to what? To make big, to declare. And so she recognizes God's bigness, how amazing and vast he is. And her, the response is just she bows down in worship, in humility, in awe, in wonder of her God. And in verse 48 she says, For he, God, has looked on the humble estates of his servant. She said, I'm just humble. I'm just God's servant. For behold, none all generations will call me blessed. Not that she gives blessings, that she's been blessed by God. And she says, and holy is his name. Verse 49, mighty. God is mighty, powerful. He has done great things for me. Great things, powerful. So you see this, that she is humbled by the power of God. Of God. In verses 51, it says, He has shown strength. There it is again. God is strong. His power is being shown here. And what does God's strength do? It says, Scatter the proud. And then it says, Bring down the mighty. And so what you see here is because God is powerful, it says that He shows His strength. He brings down the ones that think they're strong, and then He scatters the ones that are proud. Why is it? Why is it that God can't stand pride? Why does God love and delight in humility? And why does God hate it when we're proud? We all say, now don't be proud. Agreed, fair enough. We shouldn't be proud, but why? Why does God hate pride so much? Because when you are proud, you're robbing God of his glory. You're putting yourself in the place of God in your life. You are not letting Jesus take his proper place in your life. You are moving him off of the throne, and you're putting yourself in his place, and you are God over your own little world, and you want to control and manage and dictate your world. And so then you are proud, and you rob God of his glory, and he will not share his glory. God does not share his glory. You know the proper place for us? I mean, I mean, for really honest, the best position that I can be in before my God is bowed down low. Bowing down, worshiping Him, acknowledging that He is glorious and that I am not. When my heart bows to God, I'm accomplishing the very purpose that I was created for, worshiping him who was worthy. And our pride would prevent us from doing that. Let me give you a key for this first point. So we're rejoicing in God's power. Here's the key for rejoicing in God's power. The key is rejoicing in God's power means humbly trusting Him. So rejoicing in God's power means humbly trusting Him. That is the key to unlock rejoicing in God's power is trusting Him. But by the way, this is harder than it sounds. Have you ever wanted something really bad? No, I'm serious. Have you ever had something that you wanted really bad? Deep in your soul, you want it. You can almost taste it. 
Maybe what you want so bad is to be married. You just so badly yearn to be married. Maybe you are married and you so badly yearn for it to be good. Maybe your marriage stinks. Maybe it's bad. Okay, if it's bad, call it bad. Don't hide it. Don't deny it. Be honest. My marriage is horrible. If it is, be honest before God about that. And of course, you need to get to work. Do some heart work. But maybe you so badly want your marriage to be good and intimate and satisfying. Maybe you have a broken relationship. You just, ah, oh, your soul aches because you so badly want that to be healed and restored. Maybe there was this job or this career or this promotion, something, a position that you thought that would really be great. I mean, it would be good for your family, good for your career. It would really be wonderful, and you wanted it so bad. Maybe it's none of those things. Maybe what you want so bad is a ministry. There's something that you would want to do for God, and it's good. So what you desire most is to do something for God, and then God says no. Where you pray for what it is that you want. You fast for it. You have faith. You're trusting God, and you so badly say, God, you have to do this, and I'm, I'm trusting you with this. And then God says no. No, my son. No, my daughter, you can't have that marriage. You can't have that job. You, you can't have that relationship. You can't have that ministry. No. Have you ever had such disappointment where your soul is in so much pain that you can hardly breathe? Where you actually find it difficult to physically breathe because you just got some news, you just heard something, and you were hoping for the opposite response and the phone call, the news, the announcement, the email, whatever it is, is the exact opposite, and your soul is in so much anguish that in that moment and the time after, you find it hard to praise God, and, and it's just utter pain and darkness. I've been there. I could share lots of examples, some recent and some not so recent. But I can tell you, I understand we're all different. We all have our own disappointments. But when they come, this is not an if, it's a when. When they come, we must remember something. That Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you. And he is the king, and he is sovereign, and he has a plan. And we'll rejoice in God's power, in his sovereignty, knowing that he, because he loves you, he had to say no. And even though you wanted it so bad, and even if it was a good thing, maybe, just maybe, he said no, because he knows more than us. And he can see the full picture that we can't see. And he says, 
I have something better and bigger, and I know you can't see it. I know it hurts. I know, and you can feel your father holding you, and yet he is saying, will you trust me? Will you still praise me even in your disappointment? Because God will do whatever it takes. He'll do whatever it takes so that Jesus is your everything. He'll take comforts away. He'll make things harder. He'll have things not go our way if that's what it takes for us to say, Jesus, I have you. That which I wanted didn't work out, and it hurts, but I have you, and you are sufficient, and your grace is sufficient for me. Rejoicing in God's power is trusting him in the face of confusion or of the unknown or of uncertainty or of failure or of disappointment. We tend to trust Jesus for our salvation, and we think that it was a one-time thing. I trusted Jesus when he died for me on the cross, when I repented of my sins. But then we forget that it has to be a day-by-day, moment-by-moment trusting in Jesus. Not just for your initial salvation, but as he continues to sustain you and to keep you saved until the day comes when one day he will complete it and we will be together in the new heavens and the new earth and this will all have just been in the past and a memory that will fuel our worship for eternity. And so we trust him. We rejoice in his power knowing that he loves us. And he offers us what's the best, which is himself. And maybe we'll have more of him with him saying no than if he would have said yes and we would feel as though we didn't quite need him as much. Rejoicing in God's power will lead to humility. And you see that in verse 45 even where it says that blessed is she who believed that there would be fulfillment of what God has spoken to her from the Lord, believing God's promises. Mary did that, and God called her blessed because of it. We must do the same. Secondly, we must rejoice in God's holiness. Number one, rejoice in God's power. Number two, rejoice in God's holiness. Verse 49, we read earlier, it says, holy is his name. So the word holy means to set apart, be completely different and other than, to be pure, completely morally perfect. God is beautiful in his eternal perfections. Holiness, if you think of it this way, is the brightness of his glory that shines on us and reveals how dark we are. That's what his glory is, his Holiness shines on us and we're exposed for being sinners and selfish and in need of Him. So the more that we see God's absolute holiness and our absolute sinfulness, the more we'll be humbled. The more that we will rejoice in Him because He alone is worthy and we stand unworthy. As I thought about this, I I read a story this week about a young lady that had gone to Germany. She was a music student in a university, an American young lady. She went to Bonn, Germany, 
where you might know if you're from Germany that there is a very famous museum there, the Beethoven Museum. And being a music student, she went in and she gazed upon the very piano that Beethoven had used to compose many of his world-famous works. And so she went to the guard and said, can I please play on the piano that Beethoven used just for a minute? And he said, no, you can't do that. You can't go play on the piano that Beethoven used. And she says, well, I'll, I'll make it worth your time. And she bribes him. She, she gives him a very handsome tip, we'll say. So the guard says, okay, just make it quick. So this young lady goes and just kind of hammers out couple of bars opening a Moonlight Sonata, a famous song that, Mo, that Mo, not, not Mozart, Beethoven composed on that very piano. And so she plays Moonlight Sonata a few little bit, gets off, and she says, thank you for letting me play on Beethoven's piano. And she says, man, I bet every famous pianist that comes here wants to play on this piano. And the guard says, Actually, no. A few years ago, the famous Polish pianist named Ignacy John Paderewski had come to visit, and he wouldn't even touch the piano. He said, I was unworthy to even touch it. The more you grow in grace, the more you grow, the more unworthy you realize you are. When we think that we're worthy, it shows how little we actually know about God's glory. And it shows how much more of his grace we need. And it has to happen with God's spirit who is holy and makes us more like him. Holy. So let me give you two questions that's kind of like a test, okay? I want you to think about this this week. I don't ever want you to come on a Friday morning and say, oh, good, that was a nice sermon, and then you leave. That makes me want to throw up. I don't want you to say that, ever. Don't tell me that. What I want to hear is, man, I was convicted by the Holy Spirit to go do this more, to go love my wife more, to go tell my neighbors about Jesus to love my kids more, to be more sacrificially giving. I was, I was gripped by the Spirit of God through his gospel to go live more faithfully for Jesus. That's what a pastor wants to hear, I assure you, to be more like Christ. And I want to give you two questions to ponder this week to see if you're really growing, specifically in your humility towards God. The first question is, do you love God enough to be content? Do you love God enough to be content? Are you truly content with who you are, what you look like, how much you earn, who you're married to or not married? Are you content with the life God has given to you, or do you put yourself as God and say, no, no, God, I don't like this plan that you're working out in my life. I don't like it. Let's change it. I'm not content with what you're revealing through my life. I want someone else's life. Which is the second question to consider, is do you love others enough not to envy? So do you love 
God enough to be content? And then do you love others enough not to envy? See, we all do it. We all envy other people. We envy their giftedness. We envy their position. We envy their appearance. We envy their spouse. We envy their apparent ease in their life. We envy their relationships, their marriage. The list goes on and on. We envy for so many different things, and all of us struggle with it, which is why God concluded his Ten Commandments with, Thou shalt not envy, thou shalt not covet. Wraps it up, bookends, opens up with saying that you will worship no other gods, and then he ends it, bookend, you will not envy. Why? Because they're connected. They're connected. We must not be envious of God and of his position as God in our lives, and we must not be envious of other people. So when you break any commandment, you've already broken the not worshiping God, and you've likely already broken the envying because you either envied God's role, authority, position. You've envied someone else's blessings. We envy, and we're not to do it. Think of this story here, okay? Think about Mary and Elizabeth. Remember Elizabeth, okay? She was older, highly respected, married to the priest, you know, think pastor, but even more important than a pastor. Spiritual leader in her context. Great respect. An angel appears to her husband, and now she's pregnant. God has blessed Elizabeth. And she could have thought to herself, oh, well, I have all of these years of faithfully serving, all these years of praying. I've earned this from God. I deserve this blessing because of how good I am. And how important I am. She could have thought that. She didn't. She was just grateful. And then in comes in Mary, little young cousin or niece, her young relative, pregnant with not John the Baptist, but the Messiah. The very person that her son would have to submit to and announce. God gave Mary an even greater blessing than what he gave to Elizabeth. Well, who is Mary? She's not married to a priest. She doesn't have a lifetime of faithfulness like Elizabeth does. She's just a young nobody that, faithful, yes, but God chose her. And Elizabeth could have easily been envious and said, who does God think he is blessing Mary more than me? It's not right, God. I've been more faithful than she has been. I'm faithful longer than she has been. I deserve more blessings. I've done more for you than Mary has. How could you bless her more? Do we ever envy other people's blessings? When God blesses others, and we see it's clearly God's blessing on that person, and you see it, and you're envious. Why hasn't God blessed me like that? Just like last week, we were in Dalmamal, and my, my little boy Joshua found a balloon from that the new burger place, Max. It was just this balloon. And he was playing with this balloon. So excited because he just found this balloon. Now, seven-year-old sibling, little sister Abigail, where's my balloon? I said, I don't know. Joshua found that balloon. I didn't give it to him. He just found it on the, on, on the ground in the store. 
And she was it's not fair. I was like, what do you mean it's not fair? It's not fair that he has a balloon and I don't. And I said, explain to me, articulate why this is not fair, seven-year-old. And, and she says, well, it's not fair that he got something and I didn't. And I said, oh, now we're talking theology here. I said, here's what you have to understand. Our world is not fair. It is fallen and corrupted. And sometimes things happen that we will see as unfair. And yet, God is always just and always good. And he chose to bless your brother. He found a balloon. He didn't bless you with a balloon, Abby. I'm very sorry. This wasn't my idea. I didn't bless your, your brother with a balloon. God did. And so if you don't like it, deal with the king who dispenses balloons at his will. He chooses. He gave your brother a balloon, and he didn't give you one. That does not make it unfair. You have to rejoice in your brother's blessing and say, God, I'm thankful that you blessed my brother. I'm so thankful that he is enjoying this good gift. And rather than be envious, delight in that your God is so good that he blessed your brother or your sister. Love God not enough to covet. Love God enough to be content and love others enough not to envy. It's all about loving God and loving others. The greatest commandment. The key here, we talked to key earlier in the first point. Second point here is rejoicing in God, the key here is rejoicing in God's holiness is treasuring Jesus, treasuring, valuing him. If you are valuing the fact that you already have Jesus, you're going to be thankful. And it won't matter what someone else gets. You'll be thankful because you are treasuring Jesus. So rejoicing in God's holiness is just delighting in the fact that Jesus loves you, you have him, and he's making you holy through his Holy Spirit. When you have a humble heart, you'll rejoice in him. You'll rejoice in his power, rejoice in his holiness. Number three, rejoice in God's mercy. We must rejoice in who God is, rejoice in God's mercy. We see that in verse 50, remarkable. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. So God is merciful. And you jump down to the last few verses, verses 53 and following. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, to his offspring forevermore. So you see this theme of absolute mercy, God's grace being good, being better to us than we deserve. We deserve nothing good, and yet God gives us good gifts. He says he cares for his people here. It says he helps is the word, and it says that he satisfies and he gives food. It says repeatedly he is merciful, and he promised to Abraham many, many years earlier that what? That through one of his descendants, All the families, all the nations, all the peoples of the world will be blessed. He's talking about Jesus. This points to Jesus. That it is through Christ 
a descendant of Abraham, physically and spiritually. And we are joined with him through the promise to Christ. And so all the families, including in this room, are blessed through the seed of Abraham. And his name is Jesus of Nazareth. This shows his mercy. That God made a way at that first Christmas. He sent Jesus to live a perfectly holy life that we could never live, never envying others, never envying God, being completely humbled to the point of death and death on a cross. He did it for us. He offers us forgiveness if we will repent and put our complete trust in Jesus alone for our salvation. So the key, the key for rejoicing in God's mercy is thanking Him. Thanking Him. When we are grateful for our salvation, we'll rejoice. No matter what's happening, gratitude will keep you humble. Now, this is important when others hurt you, when other people disappoint you, when people offend you, when you remember your own sin, remember your own debt before God that Jesus paid, it'll give you the grace to forgive others, to endure the pain of others disappointing or hurting or offending you. We've received grace, and so now we can give grace, extend that. This is what makes us different. Listen, this is what makes the church different. The fact that we've received mercy and we can give mercy. The world doesn't do that. Those who don't know Jesus want to impose themselves and uphold their rights and get vengeance. But those of us that have the Holy Spirit, we're different. And we say to the world, come and see. Come and taste. Come and taste. How good this tastes. How sweet the gospel tastes. If you taste the gospel, which is God's incredible mercy towards you, and if you say, blah, blah, I don't like that, it's gross. If the gospel tastes bitter to you, then you don't have the Holy Spirit, and you are not saved, and you are not going to heaven. But if you taste the gospel, his mercy. And it tastes sweet to you. You are thankful for his mercy. And the response is a life of praise and of killing your sin because you want to please him who died for you. When we taste the gospel and it's sweet, that is evidence that we have the Spirit, that we're believers. How does the gospel taste to you when you hear that you are a sinner and Jesus died in your place, that you deserve hell and Jesus paid the price, the wrath has been satisfied and Jesus has shown you mercy and offers you hope and forgiveness and joy. When you hear the gospel, when you hear about his mercy, how does it taste? I pray that it's sweet to you. But if it's not, today you can turn to the king. You would be gripped by his glory that he is powerful, holy, and merciful. And that this Christmas you can be changed. And if you are a believer, that you can in a newer, more profound way pursue Christ. I love Christmas. I love the point of Christmas. 
It's joy to the world. The Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room in heaven and nature sing. That is Christmas. Is Jesus your king? Or are you rebelling against him? Is there room in your heart for him? Do you have that joy, rejoicing that only comes when you bow down and say, Jesus, I need you. And then he'll fill you and as we read, give you good food, satisfy your soul, and you'll rejoice. And you, like John the prophet, can leap for joy no matter what is happening around you. Will you please bow your heads and pray with me? Our gracious and holy and powerful Father, we confess to you that we need you we are broken. We are sinners. We are weak. But you are powerful and you are holy and you are merciful towards us. And we praise you. We praise you for you alone are worthy. We praise you for you are beautiful and good and awesome. And we stand in incredible wonder at how you would love us and make a way. We thank you that we can worship you. We thank you that we can know you, and we thank you for this Christmas season where we rejoice. We rejoice in you, and that gives us these hearts of humility that reflect your gospel, your beauty, your glory to those around us. May we tell others this Christmas, Father. May we share them the joy and the hope that lies within us. May we be a church that truly reflects your glory. Thank you for Jesus. And we pray in his name, for his sake, for his kingdom. In the name of Jesus, amen.